This is our Simon Don reading group. We're continuing our reading of Imagination and Invention. Um, for those of you who are on the server, I think I made a mistake when I put the uh, page number last time. So I think we're actually on page 100 and not 99, um, as I put in the event. But for those who are listening, anyway, we're at page 100 of the translation. Um, so we're uh, just finishing uh, section A of um, uh, part three. Um, so last time we went through, so yeah, so we're on part three. So we're on the affective emotional content of images. Um, so we are looking at, um, so again, we're going through this cycle of images that, that Simon had set out in the introduction, um, that, um, it has these three, um, stages of the cycle. It goes through, um, the, the image before the, um, encounter with the object, the image in the encounter with the object or simultaneous with the encounter with the object, and then the image uh, after the encounter with the object. And so we're on that third stage here, the, the image after the encounter with the object. Um, and then each cycle or the, this, the cycle of stages goes through different levels. So it, it sort of repeats at different levels. And so each chapter that we've gone through so far has uh, looked at one of these cycles at, uh, at the three different levels. So we last week looked at the the image um after the encounter with the object or the a posteriori image um at the first level the biological level and so we were looking at um uh, so that he talked about a few different phenomena that occur in various animals so one key one that we looked at was imprinting uh or prägung is the german term this was uh first uh described by uh some german language um ethologists so uh, this is a sort of famous phenomenon with uh, certain birds like geese or chickens. Um, they they hatch um, sort of uh, in an active state. Um, they're, they're able to sort of walk around on their own and feed themselves and so on, as opposed to other birds that are uh, that hatch uh, in a sort of helpless state where they, they're stuck in a nest and they have to depend on their parents to feed them. Uh, but so these birds, um, like geese, they, they can walk around within a few minutes or hours after hatching. Um, but what they do is they, they, so in the normal condition, the, the parents of the, of the birds are the ones that will hatch the eggs. And so they'll be right there when the eggs hatch. Uh, and um, the, the chick will um, see the parent, uh, the mother, or depending on what species of bird, it might be the mother or the father. Um, and they see the parent and they, they sort of orient their behavior around this image of the parent that they, that they see in the first few moments of life. Uh, so then they follow the, the parent around. Um, they, they sort of treat the parent as like the safety region of the world. So anytime that they're scared, they'll like run toward the parent and, and take cover. Um, uh, and then the, the sort of interesting bit about this imprinting phenomenon is that the the image of the parent is not fixed or anything like that. It's not that the, the bird hatches with uh, a knowledge of what the parent looks, looks like and, um, you know, of what, what type of entity they should run towards for safety. Instead, they actually learn in the first minutes or hours of life, um, uh, you know, this is what a parent looks like. So any creature, any entity that sort of vaguely fits certain characteristics of, you know, moving and, and so on, um, 
will serve as a parent for this chick. Uh, so it sometimes can be a dog, uh, a person, whatever. It doesn't have to be an actual goose that the, the goose chicks actually um, follow. Uh, and so, yeah, there's this um, encounter with the object. So the, the chick um, sees uh, this entity, this creature. Uh, and then afterwards, uh, there's this orientation toward the image of this object. Um, the uh, behavioral repertoire of this animal is now structured around this object that it encountered in the first few moments of life. Um, so this is a, a very um, uh, powerful and uh, quick form of learning. But of course, learning in general, um, in any other condition, uh, like if you think of the classic, um, you know, rats in a maze kind of learning process, the the animals have an encounter with this object, the maze, um, and they, uh, after, you know, repetitions, uh, sometimes only one or two repetitions of navigating the maze, they're able to, they have a sort of image um, in the sense that their behavior is structured by this um, uh, representation of the structure of the maze. So they, they no longer... Um, travel down the paths that don't lead to the food source or the reward or whatever. Um, they instead only travel through the paths that lead directly to the, the reward. Um, uh, so again, there, there's an encounter with the object and then there's uh, a learning process um, that might take you know hours or days or whatever. Um, and they eventually uh, come to have their behavioral repertoire structured by the image of the object. Uh, and so here, image, we don't need to think like, the question of whether um, the rat has like, uh, I don't know what we would call a mental image, like does the rat experience something that looks like a maze um, in the same way that we might visualize a maze to ourselves? Um, I think that question you can sort of put in brackets. It, it's not really what um, Simon Dawn was talking about here. It's the question is just about like the structure of the behavior of the rat after the encounter with the image, um, uh, sorry, after the encounter with the maze. Um, and so the image here is a sort of purely structural principle of um, uh, orientation of behavior as opposed to like something that like we don't even need to ask whether the rat has like an experience uh, of um, sort of seeing the maze in front of it as if it were navigating it or something like that. Um, and uh, then in the case of human beings, he talked about these uh, um, other sorts of images after the encounter with the object that um, are not related to living beings. So like the imprinting is always related to a living being or at least something that moves as if it were a living being. Um, but uh, in the case of humans, we also have not quite imprinting, but we have these um, uh, encounters with inanimate objects that can structure our behavior after that encounter as well. And so he, an example that he gives here is the, um, the Montessori school system uh, in which, so this is a school, um, a system of pedagogy in which the idea is that um, you provide children with an environment that's structured in such a way that children can um, uh, act independently. They can manipulate objects um, that are, you know, in the right size and you know, um, don't require very fine motor skills that they might not have yet uh, and so on. So like a, uh, Simon Dome mentions like a sink that's <clears throat> that's at the right height that a child can wash their hands without having a, um, a parent or a teacher or, or someone, um, you know, lift them up to the sink. Um, so in this environment, um, the, the child has this encounter with objects um, as 
entities that can be manipulated and that the, the child can use uh, independently um, as opposed to an environment that's made for adults in which the child encounters objects as um, always mediated through a relationship with a, a, an adult that has to sort of you know, perform the action for you or help you to perform the action or something along those lines. So these are sort of two different ways of encountering objects that can, uh, and then the, the whole sort of idea of the Montessori school system is that um, having this uh, independent access to objects helps children to develop into independent adults as they grow up. Um, so you, you become more um, sort of resilient and independent and, uh, and in general just have like a better relationship with the world by by means of learning to um, act on the world independently as a child. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, and then there was this interesting bit. One, I think the last thing I'll mention before we get started on today's reading is um, this bit where Simon Don talks about toys, children's toys, and um, what sort of relationship they should um, uh, present to the the child because he and he he mentioned this early in an earlier passage um, this idea that like a doll for example should be like anatomically accurate so some toy makers would make these dolls out of I don't know porcelain or something that had like very fine uh, anatomical details the eyelashes or whatever drawn on and uh, um, and Simondo argues that this sort of gets the idea of a toy wrong. It it it's it's not um, some sort of resemblance to uh, another object that is sort of the key um, property that a toy has to have. It's the capacity for actions that it, it offers to the child. Um, so a toy, so a, a doll, better doll could be just a bundle of rags um, that sort of allows the child to treat it as if it were a baby or something like that. But toys in general. For Simon Don, they should offer, uh, like the Montessori school, they should offer opportunities for the child to um, to act, and they should um, they should not disappoint the child in the sense that um, the child should be able to operate on them and use them, and uh, you know potentially open them up and, and things like that, like not sort of treat them uh, delicately, but you know the way a child normally plays with their toys and throws them around and stuff, um, uh, um, and they should. Um, sort of resist and um, not be so delicate that the child can't play with them in that way. Uh, and um, so he thinks that a toy that doesn't allow the child to, you know, throw it around and open it and, and all these things uh, sort of um, sets the child up for disappointment and could potentially affect the child's um, relationship to the world in the future in the same way that, uh, like, having parents or caregivers who don't respond to the child's um, needs would affect that child's relationship to other people throughout his life. Um, so like in the same way that a, uh, you know, a caregiver who doesn't provide affection to the child can affect that child's relationship with parents, with, a, with other people throughout the, their life. Um, a, a toy that disappoints the child by breaking or uh, not sort of um, doing what it's, it's supposed to do uh, this sort of disappointment can affect the child's relationship to objects throughout their life. Um, so again, he, he thinks that toys should be robust and uh, um, not sort of delicate and uh, yeah, they should avoid this disappointment sort of uh, experience for children. Um, so yeah, I think that's what I wanted to say about um, what we read last time. Um, so if I can get someone to read from page 100 uh, and then we'll continue from there. I can read. Okay. 
there remains the question of the perceptual motor character. Uh, is that right? Yes, there remains the question of the perceptual motor characters behind irreversible learning experiences in the child-object relation. Some observations on the marked preference among young children for objects with bright and saturated colors, rather than with subdued and desaturated colors, seem to indicate that the clarity of sensorial categories intervenes on imprinting. This effect may be associated with the, the role played in imprinting in animals by intense contrasted and brightly colored patterns, quote-unquote, serving as specific stimuli and intervening as veritable keys for imprinting. These are the patterns found on the inside of the beak and throat of young birds, opening their beaks in expectation of food. The opening of the chick's beak at the approach of parents is a selective uh, stimulus key that conditions the gift of food. In this particular case, we might say that imprinting is not needed, the image of the youth acting for food being specifically predetermined. Yet there is a, con a continuity between this case of extreme selectivity and other cases in which imprinting can occur with, within a margin of indetermination. For instance, the great plover in a situation of choice between its normal clutch and a quote-unquote supernormal brood with more or larger eggs, or eggs with sharper and more contrasted speckled pattern, opts for the supernormal clutch, whether artificial or from another species, and abandons its own clutch. The supernormal stimulus that plays, thus plays a role, in some cases, in choices followed by imprintings. The election of objects may have effects among adult humans in multiple forms regarding choice. In some civilizations, there subsists a continuity between childhood and adulthood, such as in the contemporary American civilization. The conditioning packaging of products of common consumption shows a search for bright colors and contrasts. Civilizations that place values of childhood and adulthood in opposition do not proceed in this way. For products of quality, the latter offer a discrete packaging and halftones aimed at connoisseurs with a rhetoric of signs of recognition or the signature of the maker. In short, the various aspects of the election of objects as a form of imprinting remain to be studied in a methodological and objective manner, but there are strong indications regarding the existence of such effects. Yeah, so there are uh, perceptual motor characters, as he puts it, that affect imprinting um, sometimes in a sort of immediate way that doesn't allow for, it's not really um, an intervention between uh, different available options, like the young chicks, uh, the bright colors and the beak and throat of young birds. Um, and then there is another kind of uh, perceptual motor intervention that may determine the choice between which which eggs to uh, to take care of, or if you're an American, apparently, <laughs> which uh, goods to buy at the convenience store. Yeah, so he argues here that there's a continuity between this. So in the one, in the sort of extreme case, is the, the birds that um, feed their chicks in response to this stimulus of the, the brightly colored um, inside of the beak and throat of the, of the chicks. So you, like, I'm sure we've all seen these pictures of like birds uh, the chicks um, sort of open their mouth and, and beg for food from the parents, and the parents uh, often like regurgitate food that they've eaten um, into the mouth of the uh, of the chicks. Um, so these are the other types of chicks, the other types of birds that I mentioned that um, are bound to the nest after they hatch. So the ones that can't feed themselves independently um, for the 
you know, maybe first few weeks after hatching. Um, and uh, so this this image is so powerful that you you actually see sometimes um, birds will feed fish, um, particular fish that have um, this same sort of brightly colored uh, inner lining of the mouth. Um, the birds will feed the fish because the fish, you know, mouth image is uh, is close enough to the um, the chick mouth image that they they have this sort of impulse or drive to um, to feed the you know this mouth that looks like a, a chick's mouth um uh and then so that's the sort of the one extreme and then you have more um uh, uh so that's in, in this case there's like sort of just one there's like a, a certain stimulus and there's a certain action that corresponds to it and it's just sort of one-to-one correspondence um and then you have this more this case of more selective um actions where uh there is like a, a certain kind of stimulus that um brings about a certain kind of action, but there's like a, a choice in in um, which uh, stimulus is the better stimulus. And so this is, so Simon Dolge sort of alludes to this. Um, he doesn't explain this in detail, but this is something that, um, again, the sort of classical ethology school, Lorenz and Tinbergen, um, they discovered, um, uh, I think it was a species of gull, um, that it's normal. I think I, we talked about this in a, a previous session, but it's normal eggs are like off white with brown spots on them, and and they have like I don't know a certain size. Um, uh, but then the experimenters would present um, uh, like a, a another nest full of these artificial eggs that are like bright yellow with red spots on them, and they're like twice the size of the um, normal eggs. And uh, it turns out that these birds will select these artificial eggs that they don't resemble their real eggs um, at all, really. Uh, but the, these sort of um, patterns of of stimulus, like the contrast between the background and the spots, is like highlighted and, and enhanced, um, and the size of the egg is is exaggerated. Um, so the what the bird is responding to is not like this looks like my egg or something like that. It's it's like these. Uh, these patterns of stimulus, this contrast and the size and everything are like, you know, this is a really good egg um, uh, because it has these sort of uh, patterns in it. Um, and so the bird is uh, sort of selectively drawn towards this um, uh, better egg as opposed to its own egg. Um, and and we can think of this in the human case. So Simon Don talks about packaging of products, um, but maybe like a, a really um, straightforward example of this is lipstick. Um, it it sort of takes the contrast between the lips and the skin tone, and it exaggerates that contrast um, and produces um, this aesthetic effect uh, um, by uh, by exaggerating this contrast. Um, but yeah, in the case of pa- packaging, uh, so Simon Don, um, I think he in general associates um, American society, as he puts it here, with this sort of. Um, immaturity or the he puts a continuity between the child state and the adult state um um and and so he talks about this brightly colored packaging um so again these bright colors sort of exaggerate the the um contrast that we might expect between like i don't know a a food substance and the the bag in which you buy it so it's uh it's like a highlighting of this contrast and uh, so it, it sort of catches your attention in an initial, like if you're just looking through the shelves at the grocery store, the brightly colored package might catch your attention. And then this contrast, this, you know, brightly colored package um, helps to uh, sort of um, 
exaggerate the the value of this food substance or or whatever it is that you're buying at a store. Um, and he suggests that there's a distinction here between like the sort of mass-produced objects that have this brightly colored packaging and sort of um, um, the high-end objects that would have this more sort of discrete packaging um, that would uh, be more subtle and it would be like sort of appealing to the connoisseur um, um, that, uh, you know, you have to be sort of in the know to be able to distinguish, you know, this is this uh, special brand of, of, I don't know, handbag or, or shirt or whatever, um, that, uh, like, if you're in the know, then you can distinguish the, the real one from the knockoff or the, 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 you know, high end brand from the, uh, mid range brand or whatever. Um, so yeah, it's, it's this appeal to like, uh, a sense of sophistication as opposed to this appeal to, uh, a sort of, um, uh, um, high contrast and, um, exaggeration of color contrast as as like the the principle that you use to select the object and we can think also of this um this sort of super super normal stimulus we can think of this as like um the property of cuteness that we experience um with certain animals like especially that have big heads big eyes etc um and this um and you know it's it's hard to say exactly like i don't think anyone has like a, a sort of complete theory of cuteness but like it's pretty clear it has some connection with the fact that human babies have much bigger heads relative to their body size than um, adults. Um, and so animals or other entities that have some sort of shared property that is um, uh, this, this sort of pattern of proportions that's similar to um, the baby's uh, proportions um, will be perceived as cute. And so... Um, and you find this, like, people treat their pets as, as babies. They even describe them as their babies. Um, and uh, so we have, like, in the human case, of course, people don't sort of uh, confuse their pets. They think that they're human or something like that. But we respond to our pets, um, uh, the properties of these animals. Um, we, we treat them in certain ways and we see them as cute and so on um, because they have these sort of patterns of... Uh, of proportions that are similar to those of, uh, of a human baby. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next uh, subsection. Um, so if someone could read, um, yeah, about a page or so, this is a little bit longer subsection, or you can probably split it into two. So uh, yeah, about a page. Mm, no volunteers. Okay, I can read this one, um, but uh, hopefully someone else will read the, the next one after that. Um, but you know, no pressure if, uh, if you don't want to. Um, okay. Section B, the level of psychic processes, the mental image, the symbol. Subsection 1, the consecutive image. If by quote-unquote image we mean a concrete representation with a sensorial content built, into the abs built in the absence of sensory stimulations or appearing in the absence of such stimulations, the phenomenon of the quote consecutive image unquote only partially deserves its name since sensorial stimulation plays a role in it even when the object is no longer present. However, since there is an almost constant transition between the effects of consecutive images and true memory images, implying no recent peripheral stimulation, we need to consider the consecutive image. The sense of sight in humans is that which is able to convey, at least in peripheral receptors, the most information. To this preeminence corresponds a high aptitude of organs or nerve pathways, perhaps of nerve centers too, to make a real stimulation caused by objects reappear after a short interval. This reappearance, halfway between perception and memory, is called the, quote, consecutive image, unquote. 
It can occur in waves and through various modalities, hence the terms of primary, secondary, or tertiary consecutive images. The primary consecutive visual image is called the hearing after image. It is produced after the stimulation of the eye by a bright area. When the stimulation ends and is replaced by darkness, the bright area seems to reappear after a short interval, and that impression subsists for several hundredths of a second. If the area is very bright, a white area, a color bleed may be observed in the consecutive image. Green, yellow, red, purple, blue, green, etc. After a second interval, the image reappears again, generally with a complementary coloration if the stimulating area was colored. This secondary image is known as the Perkinier's afterimage, Hamaka's satellite, or Bidwell's ghost image. This secondary image has a short duration. Finally, after a rather long interval, the third image, the Hess image, appears for several seconds, with sometimes a quaternary image or negative Hamaka image. We can obtain some of these effects, at least the first two, by quickly closing our eyes after having looked at a colored or white array, a window for instance. But eyelids are translucent and light continues to pass through the skin, colored in transmission by blood, which generally produces a persisting purple hue superimposed on the properly consecutive effects and thus interfering with them. The interference of consecutive effects with the luminous stimulation diffused through eyelids produces results that have a high aesthetic richness. We can obtain them by staring at a lit part of the sky, not the sun itself, which could damage retinal components. Then, by closing one's eyelids still facing the sky, contracting them to a greater or lesser extent, which causes both the amount of transmitted light and the chromatic composition to vary. Executive images may in fact superimpose themselves on perceptions if the stimulation was sufficiently strong. If, after having stared at a bright figure, we turn our gaze on a white screen, the consecutive image can be seen in the guise of a similarly shaped figure with a complementary color. This phenomenon occurs also for figures with black and white contrast, in which case superimposed consecutive images appear gray or slightly colored. Uh, actually, I think I'll just finish this section since it's all on one topic, so I'll keep going. The first consecutive images are likely due to retinal phenomena since they follow the motions of the eyes and change size according to the distance of the screen on which eyes fixate. Cuvier, Manier de Philosophie, Volume 1, page 190. This is why Cuvier does not call these phenomena images, proposing instead to call them, quote, consecutive sensations, unquote. However, we cannot affirm that they are only phenomena of fatigue in various parts of the retina. The oscillations of, negative, of positive negative phases in consecutive images, the Hess phases, may be associated with pre-equilibrium waves observed by Broca and Sulza. Nevertheless, these phenomena belong to the category of active adaptive inhibition rather than that of fatigue. Do consecutive images belong solely to vision, or can we speak by extension of consecutive images that are oral, tactile, and olfactory? Theoretically, if consecutive images are linked to phenomena of active sensorial adaptation, we may expect to encounter consecutive images that are sharper the more a sense is broadly adaptable. Hearing, while less broadly adaptable than vision, which has several regimes, photopic, mesopic, scotopic, nevertheless, uh, covers nevertheless a considerable span in terms of energy ratios, 120 to 130 decibels, and frequency ratios, 12 octaves. Indeed, after hearing an intense sound, a consecutive sound may be observed if receptors were strongly stimulated outside of the possibility of prior adaptation, for instance, with an explosion. But the image sound is not the repetition of the stimulus. Whether the stimulus is continuous or transitory, the image sound presents itself as a weak, continuous sound, generally at higher frequencies. We say that one's ears are quote-unquote ringing. Consecutive effects seem to be less marked when the adaptation capabilities and the capabilities of information reception of a sense are themselves lower. In summary, it seems judicious to accept the distinction established by Yves Legrand in Optique Physiologique, Volume 2, page 313, where he writes that the effects of consecutive or successive contrast are wrongly called consecutive images. They are consecutive images due to fatigue. These are consecutive images due to fatigue, that is to say, effects of adaptation, which, according to Yves Legrand, have nothing to do with consecutive images per se. 
True consecutive images are phenomena of persistence, even if in practice the fatigued image resulting from a phenomenon of adaptation may be superimposed on a true persistence image and cancel it. In the case of intense luminous stimulation, according to the research of Robertson and Fry, the equilibrium between successive contrast and the image takes place after approximately two minutes with an initial stimulation of 10 to the 4 candles per meter squared and a field of posterior observation of 100 candles per meter squared. Right, so here um, we're looking at images at the second level, the psychic level. Um, and so we want to start out by sort of, uh, this is sort of a limit case of an image. Um, so an image maybe in the proper sense, uh, a psychic image in the proper sense would be one that is, uh, um, that would um, be distinct from sensory experience. So like you're sort of sitting in a room and you imagine, um, I don't know, your trip that you took a year before or whatever, something completely separate from what you're currently experiencing. That's sort of like the classic case of an image. Um, the These, what he calls your consecutive images, are a sort of limit case because they're um, they're not independent from sensation in that way. So they, they only appear in a close connection with a particular kind of sensation. So in the case of visual images, um, so this is a, a sort of after image that we experience. Uh, if you look at, if you... Um, look out a bright window and then suddenly close your eyes, you have like a, a sort of after image of the bright window. Um, and um, you, you, you experience, um, if you pay close attention to the image, you experience um, this sort of changing image in different ways. And of course, this will depend on, depend on um, like the individual person, what exactly they see. Um, but um, uh, often what happens is you see um, uh, a sort of outline in the same shape as the bright image that you were looking at earlier, the window or whatever, um, but it changes colors every, you know, portion of a second. Um, it, it will go through these different colors in sequence. Um, and um, it's, uh, anyway, you can, if you pay close attention, um, you can sort of describe these sequences of images that appear um, after um, the experience of this bright sensation. And maybe actually maybe a, a better example or contemporary example is um, when you um, um, you're like in bed at night and you pick up your phone, um, you, you look at the bright screen on your phone and then, then you turn the phone off. You will often have like a, a rectangular image uh, sort of floating uh, in front of you and you'll see it like sort of change colors, you know, be, it'll turn red, then green and whatever. Um, um, so yeah, it's this bright image followed by darkness that produces this after effect of uh, uh, this sort of sequence of colored images. Um, um, and so the reason Simondon wants to talk about this kind of image is, is like a contrast, um, a contrast uh, as a sort of limit case of the image of the psychic image. So in this situation, the image is clo closely tied to the sensory experience, but in other cases, well, as we get further along in this chapter, we'll see that um, the image is less closely tied to the um, to the current sensory experience. Uh, and so he wants to, like, as usual, he's going to describe this as a sort of continuity. Um, but he, so we're starting with the, the extreme limit case, and then we're going to progressively have more and more independent images. Right. And then the, the next question that he brings up is whether there are equivalents of these images in in the case of other senses. Um, so vision is the one where this is this phenomenon occurs most uh, strongly. 
And Simone Dillon suggests that this is because vision is the, the sense that has the most um, uh, sort of structure to it. Like, um, what, what is the information that is conveyed through an image, a visual image, is, um, is much more than is conveyed through like a, a, a sound or a touch or something along those lines. Um, so, um, yeah, so the, uh, the visual um, mode of sensation, of, of sensory perception, um, is the, the mode that has the most information content or the most structure to it. And so it's, it's in this um, uh, sensory modality that we experience the most of these effects, uh, the most sort of structured effects of uh, um, this after image. But in the case of um, hearing, uh, he suggests that the, so this is a, an experience anyone who's been to like a loud concert or anything like that, any very loud sound, um, you, uh, when you leave or after the sound ends, you have this sort of ringing sensation in your ears. Um, uh, and so Simon Nol suggests that this is a, a similar type of phenomenon, uh, only that it's much less structured than in the case of a visual image. So you, you just have like, uh, a sensation of a high pitch ringing, um, a sort of constant um, uh, ringing sound, um, as opposed to this sort of uh, sequence of colored images in the case of visual uh, perception. But um, in in both cases, we have um, this sort of very strong contrast, like we have a, a, a very high degree of um, energy impacting our sense organs, and then suddenly a very low degree uh, and then there's a sort of after effect of that um, strong uh, sensation, um, which is um, sort of continued in this after image or after sensation. And and again, so there's a sort of continuity here. Like the question is whether this is a, a purely um, peripheral phenomenon. Is it just like an effect on the retinal cells or on the auditory, uh, like the cilia in your ear or something like that? Um, is it like uh, a sort of purely physical phenomenon in that sense, or does it have to do with something about the way that um, our sense experience is processed in our brain and uh, a more sort of neural slash psychological process? And Simon Dos says that it doesn't really, um, I think for Simon Dos's purpose, it doesn't matter that much where exactly this phenomenon is produced, but um, he suggests that there is um, um, a sort of uh, yeah, sort of continuity between the one case and the other. Um, so in the case of the visual images, like he's, he thinks that one uh, piece of evidence that this is a retinal phenomenon in the first instance is the fact that the image sort of follows your eyes around. So if you uh, look at your phone screen in the dark and then turn the phone screen off and then move your eyes, you see the rectangle sort of following your eye movements. So it's it's something that is sort of seems to be produced uh, on your retina. Um, but then some of the later images, as you as this image sort of changes color and uh, develops over time, over the course of a second or two, um, these might be more uh, central processes. So things that are happening in your brain as opposed to on your retina. Um, but again, I don't, I don't think the distinction really makes a big difference for what Simon Noah is talking about here. So these are, are just a sort of limit case of an image and whether it's produced on the retina or in the brain or wherever is uh, not that important. Okay, uh, can we get someone to read the next page from uh, the subsection two heading? Um, hopefully someone can uh, join us and read. Anyone have mics today? 
Everybody clicked on that link that Ben shared about the image that can break your brain. <laughs> yeah, I guess everyone's brains are broken, so they, they, can't, <laughs> uh, they can't read. I can read the next. Uh, I can start the next section. Okay. Okay. This is subsection two. Immediate images and eidetic images. We give the name of immediate images to a more complex mode of persistence, one with a longer delay than the sensorial persistence of a peripheral character and manifested as the persistence or repetition of an already structured datum, uh, thus of a perception rather than a simple sensorial datum. So long as we adopt a distinction between sensation and perception as designating in practice a more integrated central activity. Eggers, La Parole Interieure, cited by Cuvivier, uh, described the case of hearing a bell or a clock at a distance. Quote, Many times it happened that I heard the distant sounds of a bell or a clock. I soon noticed that they repeated indefinitely, and this seemed unbelievable to me. My imagination was prolonging the series after my ear had stopped perceiving it. Since the sounds perceived were very weak and as delocalized as can be, the last one I heard and the first one I imagined presented the same characteristics, and I could not distinguish between them at the time." Unquote. Immediate images are those for which for a normal subject are those which for a normal subject are most prone to be confused with the actual perception of the object when receptor organs are stimulated almost to their threshold. Furthermore, such threshold stimulation may take place in various ways, either due to the low energy of the signals or because of the quote unquote background noise of receptors and centers is in is in itself a source of signals, if we can accept that there can be a quote-unquote background noise in nervous pathways and centers. The case of weak external signals, which Egger cites, is found in the visual register and in the tactile register. If a light is projected on a screen, then progressively lowered, a moment comes when the subject can no longer tell whether the screen is still barely lit or only appears to be lit. The more the subject is motivated, the more he exerts efforts the more the subject is motivated, the more he exerts efforts, and the more images can be taken for real and objective stimulations. This happens in a progressive manner from an initial condition of correct sighting, tachistoscopic vision experiments. In fact, not only does the immediate image arise, but also older memories and ultimately collective norms. In the case of the perception of autokinetic motion, Charpentier, Aubert, Suggest, suggestions coming from third parties are also very efficacious. In the tactile register, we may cite the following experiment among others. A small disc, such as a coin, is shown to the subject, and it lightly adheres to the skin when applied against it with pressure, although it comes off with the slightest movement. Then a similar disc is pressed against the subject's forehead, but removed when the pressure stops, and the subject is asked to make the disc fall without use of hands. Use of the hands. The subject indeed attempts to make the imaginary disc fall, since he continues to feel it stuck to his forehead, which of course it is not. A large number of magic tricks or casual tricks use this confusion between the immediate image and sensorial data. So if I understand this correctly, immediate images are perceptual images as opposed to merely sensory images, which is, I think what he's saying, um, consecutive images are, uh, that is sensorial um and immediate images have a longer delay or greater persistence 
uh, and they seem to be since or perceptions that are just barely at or above the threshold of perception, like uh, the description of the sound of the bell heard at a distance. I guess the idea is that it's it was only just audible, and it's because it was just at, at this threshold that it uh, repeated longer than it should have. Yeah, so this distinction between sensation and perception is a sort of classic one in uh, in psychology, um, and you know other people have sort of contested whether this is a a valid distinction. But the the sort of idea is that a sensation, uh, what distinguishes a sensation from um, a perception is that perception is of a fact or of something that could be true or false, uh, whereas a sensation is just a sort of brute phenomenon. Um, it's not true or false; it just is. Um, as sort of one way of articulating the distinction. So, um, like, when you think of optical illusions, you might say that you, uh, like, you stick a, a pencil in, in a glass of water and you say the pencil the pencil looks bent. So this is a perceptual illusion. You you, you are perceiving a fact or a, a, an apparent fact that the pencil is bent. Um, but then the sensation that accompanies this perception is just, like, the pattern of colors that you experience of, you know, a, a sort of orange um, region surrounded by, um, you know, regions of other colors and so on. Um, so, yeah, so this is the the distinction between sensation and perception. And Simon Don is sort of taking it up here, but he, he does indicate a, a little bit of sense, um, a little bit of hesitation about it, but he he's sort of using it as a, you know, something we can work with, at least um, as a starting point. Um, and and so the, the distinction between what we looked at in the last section, these um, consecutive images, and then now the types of images that he's talking about um, here is that the, we're dealing now with perceptual images as opposed to just sensations. So like the um, the example where you look at your phone in the dark and then you close your eyes and you have this um, sort of bright rectangle sensation. Um, in this case, you don't like it doesn't look like anything. The the rectangle just looks like a bright rectangle or you just experience this bright rectangle. You don't like, uh, it doesn't look like a phone, for example. It doesn't, it doesn't seem as if the phone is, um, is floating in front of your eyes or something like that. Um, whereas some of these phenomena, you actually, it seems as if you're perceiving something like you experience, you have an experience as if something were the case. Uh, like you experience, um, a bell ringing, uh, whether, whether you're actually, hearing a real bell in the distance or um, just sort of imagining it, you you um, it, you still have an experience as if of a bell ringing is, is how you can sort of describe it. Um, and there's one, uh, I'll post a link here. Um, there's this interesting set of experiments or, or it's sort of a classic experiment that's been, you know, done in multiple variations uh, over the decades. Um, so they... Um, the the setting is they they have a bunch of uh, subjects and they play a recording of white noise to the subjects and um, so the, there's like a there's two groups uh, one is the control group and they don't really give them any instructions they just listen to the white noise and they ask them you know what did what did you hear and and most of them just say I heard noise I heard you know just random noise uh, but the other group of subjects they tell them we're gonna play a recording of noise and um, uh, at some point in the recording, you might hear uh, you might hear um, the song "White Christmas" by Bing Crosby. Um, we, you know, at, at some point we might play that song, um, sort of buried in the noise. And what happens in this case? The subjects who are given this instruction or this um, 
uh, explanation that they might hear White Christmas, they report hearing White Christmas at a very high or a much higher rate than, you know, the just the subjects that are just listening to random noise. Um, so uh, and there's you know multiple variations on this um, um, on this ex- experiment um, and, you know, what exactly people are experiencing and so on. But uh, what this shows is that this sort of um, expectation of a uh, of an experience can actually bring about that experience in certain conditions. Um, so because you're, these subjects are expecting to hear white Christmas in this, you know, very difficult, um, setting, uh, you know, sort of hidden in the noise, they actually have the experience of hearing white Christmas. Um, and so this is uh, a similar sort of case to the, um, the bell ringing one that Simon Don mentions here. So, um, uh, likewise, you're, you're listening to a bell ringing in the distance. It's a very faint sound. It's it's not really localized. It's just sort of um, in the am- ambient surrounding. Um, and each sort of occurrence of the bell ringing brings up the expectation of the next uh, stroke of the bell. Um, and and so the expectation now, uh, after the bell stops ringing, after, say, 10 strokes or whatever time it is, um, you um, continue to have that expectation of hearing a faint sound of a bell ringing. And uh, uh, this expectation can actually sort of bring about the experience of hearing a bell. Um, and, and so this is a phenomenon that it can occur in, in multiple different ways. Um, um, you can, uh, yeah, so that, like we have the auditory sensation here. Um, and then he also mentions this experiment with... Um, uh, a screen that's illuminated, and then you slowly decrease the illumination. Um, and uh, the subjects, at some point, they will say, like, yes, I see uh, an illuminated screen, um, even though there's actually no light on the screen or, or not enough light that the subject could actually perceive it. Um, uh, so again, you have this expectation. You, you've seen the screen illuminated, and you have this expectation the screen is going to be illuminated. And you uh, this expectation brings about the experience of the illumination. Um, so here, so the reason why this sort of category is different than the last one is because this is a sort of top-down process, right? As opposed to the uh, uh, the after image from looking at your phone in the dark is a, a sort of bottom-up process. It's something that happens on your retina and then, you know, possibly uh, at some point in your visual perceptual system in your brain. Um, but it, it's sort of driven by the low-level processes of visual perception, as opposed to the case of um, uh, you know hearing white Christmas in in uh, just a recording of white noise. Um, in this case, it's a very high-level process. You 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 know understand some words that the experimenter tells you, and you have an expectation driven by uh, a linguistic um, understanding, and, uh, and so it's it's a very high-level phenomenon. And then that expectation. Uh, brings about an experience. Um, so uh, this is a, a top-down as opposed to a bottom-up phenomenon uh, in this case. So that, I think this is sort of the general uh, idea of why Simon Don wants to distinguish between these two cases. Um, but uh, again, there's a sort of continuity in the sense that um, uh, we're sort of progressively getting more and more detached, images that are more and more detached from the um, sensory um, present experience. Uh, so the the after image is just sort of immediately following the uh, initial experience. And then now we have these um, uh, other sorts of images that are 
um, not directly tied to what we're currently experiencing, but instead to what we expect to experience or what we um, think we might experience. Uh, um, so yeah, there's a, a higher degree of separation between our current sensory input and uh, the image that we experience in this case. Okay, uh, so it seems like it's just the two of us who are um, able to read today. So uh, uh, unless there's any other volunteers, I'll read the next section. Oh, the next section is so three, memory images. Uh, oh, sorry, we're not quite there yet. Uh, sorry, just sorry, a second. Sorry. If, you, uh, if you want to read, um, could you read from page 104, uh, the bottom of page 104, the background noise of sensory organs? And then, yeah, and read like a page from there because we have a couple more a couple more pages to go before the section break. So, yeah, if you could read from there, um, have you found the the spot? Uh, one of four, right? One of four. Uh, sorry, which one again? Why? Why did uh, you read? Yeah, so the background, the bottom of the page, the bottom paragraph, the background noise of sensory organs. Oh, I meant to. So sorry, I just sort of lost where it is, and then. I meant to read and then, oh, oh my goodness, what, what, why I can find it? I can just find it. Why is the degree of precision of the immediate image is not that part, right? Um, no, sorry. It's 104. Uh, oh, sorry. It's 169 of the PDF? Okay. Yeah, the background noise of sensory organs is the, the first line. Ah, sorry. I Just just like a... I can't. Or if you want, I can read the next one and then you can read the one after that. Yeah, uh, yeah sorry. The... I'll do that. I'll yeah. do that. Sorry, sorry. Okay, I'll read this one, and then you can read the next one, uh, and you can find where we are and uh, go from there. Yep, yep. Okay. The background noise of sensory organs brings about a stimulation that interferes with the signals actually coming from the milieu and may feed the immediate image. If this, uh, if this background noise were a white noise, it would trigger only a rise in thresholds, but generally it is not equi-energetic. The more it is selective or quote-unquote colored, the more it can sustain a confusion between immediate images and objective perceptions. Within the register of hearing, the curve of lower thresholds indicates that for faint sounds, the sensitivity of receptors is greater between 600 and 3000 hertz, which is precisely the span of the human voice and its harmonics. The weaker the sound, the more the ear functions as a selector and ultimately a selective generator of endogenous sounds. This selectivity disappears at higher energies, Fletcher's curve. Hence, the most common immediate auditory images come from speech, singing, and those sounds belonging to the frequency band selected by auditory receptors when they receive faint sounds. Visual receptors among humans do not display a similar change of selectivity in relation to the signal level, in spite of the Purkinje phenomenon, which is rather faint and does not predetermine the visual background fog to feed a certain category of immediate images rather than, than another. What is the degree of precision of the immediate image? It appears to vary widely according to subjects, to the meaning under, under scrutiny, and to age. You will call a dedic image predominantly a predominantly visual image that has a degree of precision comparable to direct perception and lends itself to mental examination. For instance, a word that was seen in writing may be spelled backwards. Numbers may be subjected to operations as if they were written on a blackboard. The development of editism is at a maximum among children aged 10 to 14. It allows for the rapid learning of information in concrete forms such as geography maps, diagrams, and schemas. We should note that this faculty coincides with the maximum of perceptual activity, producing the maximum of optical geometrical illusions for ages 10 to 14. In his On Intelligence, Ten examines the case of young calculating prodigies, prodigies, in particular that of Colburn, who could neither read nor write, yet could, quote-unquote, clearly see in front of him his computations. In the same book, Ten cites the case of chess players who can play a chess game with their eyes closed and their head facing towards the wall. Quote, they have numbered the squares and pieces. At each move of their opponent, they are told the piece moved and the new square it occupies. 
They give directions themselves for the movement of their own pieces and go on in this way for many hours. They often win, even against, a, sorry, even when opposed to skillful players. Evidently, the figure of the whole chessboard, with the different pieces in order, presents itself to them at each move as in an internal mirror. For without this, they would be unable to foresee the probable consequences of their adversaries and their own moves. Unquote. For Ten, according to the description of one of his American friends who has this faculty, the subject sees the whole chessboard simultaneously with all the pieces as they were in actuality after the last move. Quote, as each piece is moved, I see the whole chessboard with the new change affected. If I am in doubt in my mind as to the exact position of a piece, I play over mentally the whole game from the beginning, attending carefully to the successive movements of that piece. It is far easier for me to make a mistake when I look at the board than when I don't. I see the piece, the square, and the color exactly as the workman made them. That is, I see the chessboard standing before my adversary, or at all events, I have an exact representation of it and not that of another chessboard. This player affirms that before starting to play, he be begins by looking carefully at the position of the pieces on the chessboard in order to have an anchor and come back mentally to that first impression. In practice, he does not see the green and white board, nor the shadow of the pieces, nor other small details in their structure. But if he wants to see them, he can. Then adds that such representations repeat or return involuntarily, arising back into one's mind, for instance, during a bout of insomnia. Right. Um, so we've talked about this uh, before, this uh, phenomenon of chess players who can... Um, uh, well, for one thing, they can play these blindfold games, or um, uh, there are even players who do these uh, demonstrations where they play blindfolded against 10 or 20 or whatever opponents at the same time. Um, um, and so the, what this demonstrates uh, here is, a, again, a, a further degree of separation of the, uh, of the image from the sensory experience. So in this case, the so as... Uh, this one subject described things to, to Ten. Um, he looks at the chessboard at, at the start of the match to get like a good image of, of it, what it looks like. Um, and then uh, once he's blindfolded, uh, then he sort of visualizes the movement of the pieces um, over the course of, uh, uh, of the, the match. Um, and so people who have this ability, um, they, they can sort of, create an image or, or imagine the movement of the pieces throughout the match in a, a very precise way. They can um, depict where all the pieces are um, uh, over the course of the match. Um, but and, and this has been studied experimentally. I think I mentioned this before, is that um, these expert chess players are actually no better than um, novices at just remembering random arrangements of pieces. Uh, if you take pieces and just sort of scatter them randomly on the board, um, the the expert chess players are no better than novices at remembering them. It's only situations that actually arise in the course of a game um, that they can um, visualize in this way. So they they're grasping the whole structure of the chess board of you know which pieces are threatening which other ones and you know where the king is and and so on. Um, they they grasp a, a sort of structure um, of the board as opposed to just like um, sort of. Uh, having a, a picture of a you know arrangement of pieces of wood uh, on a on a background or something like that. So it's a it's a an image um, that has um, a lot of structure built into it of like where what relationship the different pieces have to each other, as opposed to just like a um, people talk about like a photographic memory. Um, but in this case, uh, and probably in in most cases of what we think of as a photographic memory, it's it's not like a photograph that just has like um, a sort of static depiction of a uh, arrangement of um, 
visual uh, phenomena or something like that. It has this uh, structure built into it, this sort of dynamics built into it. Uh, so again, this is uh, sort of a further step away from just the um, uh, sensory environment of the subject, uh, because in this case, the subject, um, they have this sort of initial experience of the chessboard and what it looks like, but then the whole rest of the match is just played out in their imagination. Um, they, they don't actually see where the pieces are, you know, 20, 30, whatever moves into the match. They, uh, they, the whole experience of the match is, is taking place in their imagination. Uh, so it's, again, more, more detached from the environment. It seems um, sort of like the a posteriori counterpart to the um, differential perception that he discussed in the present, uh, the a presenti moment. Uh, you know, the uh, somebody who is deeply familiar with um, this is probably where we talked about chess. Actually, uh, you know, like he gives the example of. A mother who can know that her child is sick um, from like very subtle changes in behavior that would be overlooked by a doctor uh, who obviously doesn't have particular knowledge of that kid. Um, but this one is, uh, I guess, the differential perception was perception in the present moment, and this is a kind of um, a kind of uh, image that is, as you said. Uh, that are further removed from sensation. Yeah, I think, uh, so what these two types of image have in common is that they involve a kind of expert knowledge. Um, uh, so yeah, like we talked about with the, the mother who can um, just sort of sense, you know, through these very subtle, very subtle signs that she might not even be consciously aware of that her child is sick. Um, uh, so this involves an expert knowledge of, um, you know, what her child's, Sort of behavior and facial expressions, all these things look like norm normally. Um, um, in the case of the chess player, there's a again, of course, an expert knowledge, and this is something that, in part, the chess player can express. You can say, like, you know, this type of opening is is better than this other type or whatever. But partly, it's like a, a just sort of immediate um, um, experience in the sense that the chess player will, uh, if you just show them. Uh, a certain configuration of pieces on the board, they immediately see, okay, this piece is in uh, is threatened by this other piece, or this um, you know arrangement of of pieces allows for you know this sequence of moves or whatever. Um, uh, so that's like sort of the the present uh, experience of of an expert chess player. Um, whereas uh, what this what this allows is for um, this imagination or this sort of independence from the perceptual experience um, or detachment from the environment. Uh, and presumably this would also be the case to some extent, at least for the mother, the mother who is, um, uh, you know, has the expert knowledge of what her child um, sort of looks like and, and acts like and, and everything. Um, the child or the, the mother, sorry, would be able to um, sort of, uh, like and and we talk about like sort of uh, knowing how a person would respond to a particular situation. Like you say, oh, that that's not in character, or that is in character with that person. So you you have like a, a sense of sort of what kinds of actions that person would do in a particular situation, uh, even if it's one that you've never actually seen that person in before. Uh, and so this kind of um, 
grasp of, of an action as in character or out of character or whatever, uh, I think is a, maybe the equivalent of, you know, the chess player who can play this uh, match while blindfolded. Um, uh, you, um, it's, it's a, a sort of um, imaginary playing out of what, uh, what a, uh, this expert knowledge, uh, uh, using your expert knowledge to play out in imagination a sequence of events and see whether it makes sense or not. Um, so yeah, it's a, a related phenomenon, but I think the um, this kind of image that we're talking about here is like a, a sort of application that you can sometimes make of that expert knowledge um, that we talked about in the previous uh, part of the book. Okay, uh, Ollie, have you found uh, where we are? Are you ready to uh, to pick up from where we stopped? Yeah, yeah. Is that is such an aptitude, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so if you could read like uh, a page from there. Um, to the top of 108, maybe the first paragraph of 108. Uh, okay. Is such an aptitude advanced or primitive? Tyne affirms that the first two players are not the most skillful at this artifi- artifice. And, and quote. Some players are able to conduct simultaneous games in a didactic vision with the power of imagination whose extent and lucidity are truly prodigi- prodigious. But the truly great players such as uh, La Bourre de and only uh, can only mentally play two games at once. This remark points in the direction of young servants who are sometimes quite unknowledgeable and have a difficulty furthering their study of mathematics. Confronted with uh, such cases, Esartier, uh, in Les Forms pour Inferieure de l'Explication, page 83, hypothesis hypothesize the primitive nature of eidetic images. They would represent the vestiges of quotes. This prodigious memory encountered among primitive people, the last witness of a mental universe now by gone, end of quote. This hypothesis displays an excessive agreement with a monolinear theory of evolution occurring for mental as well as social forms. It is interesting insofar as the phenomenon of eidotic images may be linked to a definite regime of mental activity and to a level of awareness distinct from that which produces reflexive thoughts and critical attitude. Any subject, in fact, may experience eidotic images when faced with a situation of violent emotional stimulation. Some concrete features of the situation may register deeply make the same scene reappear later in a quasi-hallucinatory manner with a very intense pregnancy of detail. Even if, even if it should be admitted that idotism is one aspect of savage mind, la pensée sauvage, it would not be a sufficient reason to consider this mental activity as simply a vesicle or a sign of quotes, aggression, end of quotes. To the contrary, Anidatism may well appear to be one of the roots of artistic imagination and perhaps inventive imagination in general, an activity of a rather primitive kind integrated in the development of intellectual symbolism would provide the basis for creativity, which implies all at once a direct, new, and concrete view of reality and a highly developed abstract symbolic aptitude which is required for the ordered and organized construction of a new work. New work. New work. Creativity is a set of aptitudes combined in the subject, and plus the extreme 
extreme terms of the old and the new, of the savage mind and abstract symbolism. In this sense, Tain notes there are concrete memory which in images that are comparable to idiotic images exist among many artists. Some images that are more irregular, more nuanced, more difficult to remember than those of chess players present themselves with equal precision to certain painters, draughtsmen, or sculptors who, after having attentively beheld a model, may make a portrait from memory. Quotes. Gustavo Doré has this faculty. Horace Burnett had it. Abercrombie cites a painter who, from memory and without the aid of any illustration, copied a canvas of a uh, martyrdom of San, San, Saint Peter from uh, Rubens with such a perfect imi- imi- imitation that the two paintings being placed side by side, a great attention was needed to dis- distinguish the copy from the original end of quotes. Tain also cites the case of Mozart, who, having heard Allegri's Miserere sure, twice in the Sistine Chapel, wrote it down in its entirety from memory. Quotes, As it was forbidden to copy, the fidelity of the uh, Kappelmeister suspected on account of difficulty of the exploits. Exploit. End of quotes. Similarly, similarly Valjak could see objects in his head, lit and colored, as in the moments when he had gazed upon them. Test to an anatomist would give his course with quotes, the imaginary, imaginary sight of the region of the body to be described, end of quotes, before his very eyes. This rest of two cases cited by Cuvillier may be associated with the learning experience of Brère de Boisemont, Cited by Tain, Pierre de Boismont conducted the exercise of imprinting in himself the face of one of his friends and succeeded in having visible mental impression that seemed external and quotes placed in the direction of the of the visual ray end of quotes with the dimensions of dimensions and attributes of the model quotes the images vaporous and of another nature than objective and sensation. Yet bonded and colored. End of quotes. Tain maintains that some drawing schools in Paris, Paris train their students train uh, Paris train their students to pro- produce from memory a set of objects after glancing at them for a moment. Over time, their aptitude for such practices increases. At first, the students experience difficulties. The image vanishes as soon as the setup is covered over. But later, the image comes back and may be sustained for long enough to enough span span for drawing it. We might add that prestigiators, ah, sorry, prestigi, prestigi, sorry, prestig, prestigiators develop this mode of memory through eidetic images, seeing the audience for only a few seconds before being blindfolded. Some of them can describe audience members as if endowed with extrasensorial perception. In reality, they make use of an eidetic image. Here? Stop here, right? Yes, thanks. That's good. Okay, thank you. Sorry. Sorry for yeah. strange pronunciations. No, that's, that's fine. There's some uh, difficult words in here. Um, 
Right. So the question now, the question that Simon Dong is asking now is like this faculty of this eidetic image or, um, uh, you know, trying to um, uh, working with these images like the chess expert who can, you know, play blindfold and so on. Is this like a sort of, should we treat this as a, a very sophisticated uh, mental ability or um, uh, maybe a, a not so sophisticated one? And, and so on, uh, on, on the side of, you know, this not being a necessarily a very sophisticated ability, there are some people, um, so he talks about the, what he calls the savants, this is sort of a famous phenomenon. There are some people who, um, um, their sort of general intellectual abilities are, are quite low. Um, like, you know, IQ tests are, you know, there's a lot of reasons to think they're not that great in general, but there are people that, you know, uh, will score like a 50 or 60 on an IQ test. Um, and they have, you know, they're, they're not really capable of living independently of, you know, having a bank account and a job and all these things. Uh, but they display like in a very restricted domain, they display these abilities of, um, uh, you know, remembering or uh, calculating or whatever in in like very exact detail. Um, uh, like there are instances, there's people that um, they can like if you just give them a date, uh, you know, in the past or the future, they can immediately tell you, you know, what day of the week it is or or uh, and, and things like that. Like they like if you say you know January first, uh, nineteen seventy three, they they can say oh that was a Wednesday or or whatever. Um, uh, whereas of course for most of us, like if we had to calculate this in our heads like it, it would we would just get lost after a couple of years it, it like it uh anyway it's it's something that we would never be able to know without looking at a calendar but these people have like um sort of memorized a calendar or they they're are capable of calculating in this very restricted domain um in such with such exactness that they sort of immediately know the answer um and uh and so some memory phenomena are similar uh, in the sense that the people who exhibit it might not necessarily be like um, exceptional in other domains. They might not be sort of masters. Um, and, and so I don't know if this, how much validity this has in the case of chess, but he suggests that like the best chess players in general, the ones who are like the best at you know, defeating other highly skilled opponents um, might not necessarily be the ones who are best at this uh, exercise of playing um, playing blindfolded against many opponents at the same time. So the skill of uh, beating other highly skilled op opponents is not the same kind of skill as the skill of playing against many opponents at the same time while blindfolded. Um, so I don't know if that's true or not, and that's probably something you could uh, look at, like, um, you know, experimental uh, results and, in, uh, you know, the results of different uh, tournaments and so on. Um, but... Uh, you know that it's at least in principle these these aren't necessarily the same skill and whether whether or not these two skills coincide is a um um uh, a sort of um empirical question that we can examine um in particular cases uh and um so he 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 mentions here you know he uses again we have to remember this was written in the, in the 1960s but he uses the term you know primitive uh or savage thought um and uh, we were just sort of talking in the chat here about um, the distinction. And this is something that, you know, Plato um, brings up in relation to writing. Um, so many societies in which uh, that either don't use writing or have a limited use of writing, um, uh, people exhibit, uh, you know, memory feats that most of us in societies that are based on writing 
um, would not be able to perform. Uh, so people memorize long poems or songs or whatever. Um, yeah, so like in uh, in ancient Greece, um, in like say seventh century BC, uh, of course writing existed, but it was still semi-marginal. It was not like uh, sort of everyday use in the same way as it is today. Uh, and there were um, these rhapsodes, these um, sort of bar- bards, I guess, who would recite the whole the whole Iliad from memory. Um, and you would say like you know recite this passage for me, and they would just you know be able to recite it. Uh, and um, uh, like even today, there like in the Islamic world, there are many people who can recite the whole Quran from memory. There's you know special schools where people learn this. Um, um, uh, so there, in other cultures aside from sort of the Western uh, uh, worlds, there are still today people who exhibit these sort of memory phenomena that we would have a very hard time with. Um, that uh, uh, and so there's a sort of trade-off. To some extent, between um, uh, you know, writing obviously allows for the permanence of um, uh, of a record and um, phenomena. Like you can do things like uh, calculation in writing much more easily than uh, uh, sort of by memory. But then at the same time, you sort of lose uh, the faculty of um, uh, you, you lose the habit of uh, uh, operating from memory, and so your capacity to remember long stretches of text or, um, you know, long poems or whatever probably diminishes in a society where you're expected to do everything in written form. Um, so again, there's a sort of, um, there's a sort of, um, distinction here between like different skills, uh, and we can ask, you know, to what extent are these skills, uh, sophisticated ones or are they like, um, um, are they, uh, you know, maybe less sophisticated ones. Um, and the the suggestion here uh, in at first is that um, the sort of the pure memory of just like, you know, being able to um, remember a poem is maybe not necessarily a sophisticated skill. Obviously, it's much less sophisticated than being able to write a poem. Um, but then there's also um, like artists, and he gives some examples here, that have this a similar skill, but maybe in a, a different register. Um, so it's not just that they sort of memorize, uh, you know, what day of the week something, uh, a particular date is or something like that. Uh, this sort of very base, basic uh, correlation of facts. Um, they instead are capable of grasping uh, like uh, a painting or um, uh, a musical work or whatever. They grasp it uh, as a whole and they, they sort of understand the whole structure um, and, uh, you know, they're capable of, of hearing a, a piece of music, uh, like Mozart heard it, heard this mass uh, performed twice and then was capable of writing down the whole thing from memory. Um, uh, and so this, this exhibits not just a sort of pure memory phenomenon of in the same way that memorizing the day of the week does. Um, it's uh, a grasp of the structure because it's only because Mozart was able to understand the whole structure of this mass um, that he could uh, memorize it so easily. Uh, whereas someone who, like, say, had a, a very strong memory, but had no knowledge of music, they would just hear a sequence of sounds, um, and they would, um, they would not have this capacity to reproduce it from memory in the way that Mozart did. So again, there's a, a sort of more sophisticated form of memory 
that involves a grasp of the structure as opposed to just like a sort of uh, reproduction of a correlation of patterns. This uh, paragraph on 107, where he talks about this kind of intellectivity is both vestigial and uh, like high advanced, I guess he calls it like the old and the new. Um, I don't really understand in what sense, what kind of timeline he has in mind. I mean, because, you know, the kinds of groups that he refers to as primitive, obviously, are also capable of abstract symbolism. Um, Seems like there's an interesting idea in this paragraph, but I just, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure what these are old and new with respect to. Yeah, there's a certain amount of sort of linear um, evolutionary um, hierarchization going on here that um, there would be like a sort of uh, progression of human faculties or human capacities over time from like the supposedly primitive to the, you know, sophisticated modern capacities. Um, and uh, um, so Simon Dome sort of takes this up in an uncritical way, I think, um, like, well, he's, he's working with um, texts from uh, Ten and, and people, um, you know, writing in the end of the 19th century. Um, so obviously even more um, subject to this kind of way of thinking than in, in the 1960s. Um, so I think the, the idea is that uh, human history would sort of, there would be a progression from this so- so-called primitive society or, or savage thought where people would have this um, highly developed capacity to memorize patterns and to, whether it's like a a song uh, that you remember or a poem or whatever, um, uh, but they wouldn't sort of have the capacity for creativity and um, rational thought in the way that more sophisticated societies would. And then uh, over the course of human history, there's a sort of change of the balance where in our society, our sophisticated uh, Western societies, we might have lost some of this capacity for memory, but it's counterbalanced by the greater capacity to um, uh, invent and create and so on. Um, So there's a lot that, of course, would be um, contestable in this story. Um, But I think what we can sort of extract from it and take as like, you know, something that is still valid is the idea that um, in creation, in invention, there's a sort of interplay between um, between like a reproductive capacity and uh, a capacity for transformation of what you reproduce. So uh, obviously, people like Mozart and uh, other artists, um, they they're great artists not because they can reproduce. So it's not because Mozart could um, write down this uh, this mass after hearing it twice that he was a great artist. It's because he was a great artist that he was able to reproduce this mass. Um, so um, uh, there's, there's a, yeah, an interplay between this capacity to reproduce something uh, and then to produce something new at the same time. So, uh, and I, I think we talked about this a little bit in, uh, in uh, individuation, that like a sort of the idea of like a complete novelty is sort of nonsensical if you think about it, where like, something that has no relation to anything that anyone has ever produced before would not be like creative in the real meaning of that term. It would just be like, I don't know, weird noises or something. Um, uh, but what, what is really creative is like taking 
something that already exists or, or like, you know, traditions or structures or whatever of existing music and then uh, doing something different with that structure, like in a way that no one has done before, but like uh, on the basis of what people had already done. Um, so it's, I think in that sense that there's this interplay of the old and the new in, in creation. So you're, you're doing something new, but on the basis or using the materials that um, are provided to you from a cultural tradition or um, other artists or, or whatever. Thanks. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. And the other, the other side of this, too, is that the idea that an artist is sort of supposed to be inventive, supposed to produce something, something new that no one has done before. Um, this idea of invention and creativity is itself something that has a historical um, uh, sort of arising uh, in, in uh, artistic history, right? Um, like if you think of um, um, like medieval and uh, Renaissance artists, often you have these um, productions that are, you know, very beautiful, um, but the the artist's name is not known. Like the people are described as like the master of whatever artwork or whatever. Uh, their the the person's name is never known because the the idea that like an artist was a sort of individual genius who produces a new uh, production or new creation um, was not like part of the uh, sort of intellectual um, environment of the time. Like an artist for. Uh, in say a medieval church setting um, was just someone who like depicted the um, events of a saint's life or of you know biblical story or whatever um, in a way that conveyed the message in uh, you know appropriately to the audience um, um, they they weren't necessarily thought of as like these uh, inventors even if they actually in reality are inventing uh, they aren't sort of understood it as inventing it. It's a sort of unconscious invention, I guess you could say. Um, so like this, this idea of invention is itself something that was more or less invented. Um, and, and so different societies have different um, mixes of like uh, how much novelty, how much creativity or like this balance between the old and the new is, uh, is different in different societies and different time periods and so on. Um, and uh, so I think, are like especially since maybe the beginning of the 20th century um the balance is like very strongly towards the the novelty side um and uh you know some artists like it, it seems like they sort of pursue the idea of like shocking people as like you know here's something complete, completely new that's you know so new that it's shocking and, and this is like um sort of what they take to be like the the goal of art or something like that. Um, but maybe that's sort of uh, one taking one side to an extreme and without sort of counterbalancing it with the other side. And um, maybe novelty is only really artistic or creative when it's, it's sort of on the basis of, a, of something old as well. Uh, okay, so we're pretty much at time. Um, yeah, and this section has a few more pages, so we don't really have time to finish it. Um, so let me see, where did we end? Uh, top of 108, I believe. Yes. Oh, maybe the one last thing that we can talk about quickly before we go um, is, um, yeah, the uh, this capacity uh, of um, prestidigitators. So these are so people who uh, perform the like magic tricks. Uh, so he talks about this um, performance where the, the person is blindfolded um, 
and then they describe the audience per, like uh, someone comes up from the audience and they say oh this person has blonde hair they're, they're wearing this kind of coat they're whatever um uh and so they they describe what they the show you know sort of describes them as having this capacity to um sort of uh, extrasensory perception they can perceive the properties of the person without um without uh you know using their eyes or other senses um but what they're really doing is um is uh they they're capable of very quickly seeing the audience um before the blindfold goes on and um and then they they use that very quick perception so like most of us if you just walk out onto a stage and look out at the audience you just see sort of a vague mass of people um and you won't be able to say anything about any particular person. But these people apparently have the faculty of looking out at the audience and seeing like 100 individual people with like their, you know, what they're wearing, you know, what they look like, et cetera. Um, and sort of grasping that in in a second or two um, in the same way that the chess master can look at the chessboard and immediately see what all the pieces are doing. Uh, and so this faculty of like uh, grasping the audience members um appearance uh is what they used then when they're bl when they're blindfolded to um you know sort of present themselves as having this capacity for extrasensory perception uh and um so this is a sort of a very interesting sort of field of study that i, I think has not really been developed that much but like some of these more um like and, and it sort of overlaps with uh the research into so-called uh, uh psychical abilities um you know, things like extrasensory perception, um, tele telepathy, things like that. Um, I think what would be interesting to examine is like, you know, I'm I'm just sort of assuming that these are not like real in, in the way that they're depicted, that, that people are not actually, you know, detecting other people's thoughts uh, through immediate perception. But it's still uh, the actual phenomenon is something to be explained. Like, what is it that people are detecting that allows them to, um, you know, uh, perform these uh tricks that look as if they're you know reading your mind or whatever um so yeah i think this is a, a sort of interesting bit um that hasn't really been developed that much partly because the the whole like domain of psychical research and you know extrasensory perception and all that has uh for good reason a, a very bad reputation okay uh so now i think um yeah that was all i had to say on that but uh now i think we can uh end um so, yeah, we'll pick up from the top of 108 next time. Um, so thanks, everyone, for coming out. Um, thanks for your contributions and hope to see you next week.